Hello, I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager, and welcome to In Conversation With, the podcast series that delves into the world of financial services and brings you face-to-face with some of the most notable figures in the industry. Listen as we discuss topics that are currently facing the industry and hear from visionary CEOs to disruptive innovators as we bring you a diverse array of voices and perspectives. We'll explore the challenges they faced, the lessons they've learned, and the insights they have to share about the ever-evolving landscape of financial services. everyone, I'm Lois Vallely, Chief Reporter at Money Marketing, and for this episode, I am joined by Ben Peel, who is UK Managing Director for investment management firm Portfolio Metrics. Hello, Ben. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Um, so for those who don't know, although I'm sure many people do know who you are, but for those who don't, could you maybe start off by telling me a bit about yourself, um, how you got to where you are today, and then a little bit about Portfolio Metrics and what you guys do? Sure. So from my side of things, I spent the first 20 odd years of my career in investment banking. Most of that was for UBS, more on the institutional side. So actually, when I switched to portfolio metrics coming up for five years ago, that was quite a big sea change because I went from institutional towards the retail um, client facing side of the market. So that's been a big shift. And also, I guess I went from a firm where there was 50,000 people there to a firm of about 60 odd. So, um, but I think it's, from my perspective, it's been a very re- rewarding and interesting career transition. In terms of portfolio metrics, so we are a discretionary investment manager. We run about three billion pounds worth of assets. Um, we've been around for the last 13 years or so. So, broke into what was already quite a crowded market. And I think really the big differentiators about us is we're not trying to just put clients into an off the shelf simplistic one through five outcome um, solution. Uh, We also have our own technology, which we give to the advisors we work with. And uh, we believe that leads to most importantly, better outcomes for clients, but also can lead to big efficiency gains for advisors. Okay, cool. Um, So in your experience, then, why do you think more advisors are switching from building advisory models to using a discretionary service? Yeah, I think this is definitely a trend you've observed probably over the last five to 10 years, but it seems to be picking up pace quite a lot at the moment. Um, And I think that the reason behind that, it's categorically not because the advisors who are building advisory models are doing a bad job. The problem is there are a number of drawbacks about this approach. Uh, I think the first one and the most obvious one is it's massively time consuming. I mm-hmm. think if you're going to go and analyze 15 plus asset classes to build a fully fledged asset allocation and then research over 6,000 underlying funds to populate that asset allocation model, this is clearly not something which can be squeezed into your lunch break. So I think it's very time consuming. Um, the second thing is I think most advisors and certainly the advisors we work with have concluded that what their clients value the most is actually that holistic financial planning. Uh, it's not so much around the investment side of things. So actually partnering with a discretionary investment manager to do a lot of the heavy lifting on that side allows them to spend more time with clients. And I think that is something which, frankly, most advisors, that's the bit they enjoy the most. Um, and I think delivering that financial plan for their clients, um, I think a lot of them have been pulled away from that and certainly it had impeded their ability to grow the business. Mm. 
I think the third thing is it is also operationally very inefficient because if you're running advisory models and you've got to go and get permission from 100 or 200 or 500 clients every time you want to make a change, that is a nightmare, candidly, because a lot of clients, and it's generally the same clients, won't respond for weeks or months. Um, and then you've got two options. If you either sit on the authorizations you have got from existing clients but don't act on them, there's a risk you're outside, acting outside of your advisory permissions. Or alternatively, if you move some clients now and then some clients later, you're creating this sort of Frankenstein's monster of different models. And that problem only gets worse over time. Effectively, every time you rebalance, it gets worse and worse. So I think that's another big drawback. And I guess the final two, um, which we hear quite a lot from advisors recently, is that if you're solely tying your value as an advisor to investment outcomes, this is frankly something which you can't control. Uh, and that has been fine, I guess, for up until the last two years, the prior decade, you know, markets went up pretty much in a straight line. So that was fine. But now I think that is causing more advisors to rethink that approach. And then the big one I suppose to finish off with is the risk of being disintermediated as an advisor. You'll have seen, if you watch TV or frankly read the press, a lot of the biggest investment providers, particularly the passive names, have been targeting the end clients directly. Um, mm -hmm. So you've seen adverts from Vanguard on the TV or whoever it might be. Um, and I guess you that kind of direct-to-consumer approach um, is potentially something which could disintermediate advisors um, over the longer term. So I think that's probably the main reasons why, what's driving advisors to come to us uh, and ask for our help and to, to work with us. Mm. Yeah, um, two things that jumped out at me there from just what you said. Um, one, and it may be a very naive question and advisors probably already know the answer, but so if you're a, an advisor, you need to get permission from your, your clients to move their investments. But do you guys need to do that as well? Or is that... No, so the way it works with the discretionary service is effectively the advisor and or the client will sign a discretionary mandate, which authorizes us to make changes without asking for their permission. So that's where a lot of the time savings come through. Um, and I think it's one of those ones where it's it just for the advisors who are having to do this, it's the same 20% of their clients who don't respond. And, mm. But that probably that means they can't move on with the other eighty percent of their clients. So yeah, that is that that's the construct that most advisors have who are working on under the advisory model basis. Yeah. Okay. I see. Um, and the other thing, just when you were talking about holistic financial planning, there it made me think of a feature that I wrote not long ago about um, what advisors call themselves, whether they call themselves mm. advisors or planners or as um, I don't know if you know Roy McLaughlin, but he calls himself a financial architect much to the disgust of some people. Um, and just, it seems like more people, more um, client-facing staff are starting to call themselves planners, presumably because they're sort of trying to focus more on this holistic planning rather than just sort of giving investment advice. So I did see your article on that. Um, I thought you made some interesting points there. I think, um, yeah, listen, it's it, there's an element of semantics here. Um, I would say the majority of advisors we work with will call themselves planners because they realise that their sphere of influence extends far and wide. Um, and actually something which we've written about, and I'm actually in the midst of presenting at the PFS Roadshow about, about you know, the very, very many different things that advisors do for their clients, which extend way beyond investments. Um, so, and I think that is something which um you know most advisors probably haven't articulated to their clients you know to the full extent so no i mean i'd say from my point of view call yourself what you like but i think it's more about explaining to a client all the different things you do for them mm, yeah definitely and giving them a good service of course 
of course. Um, so could you talk us through some of the pros and cons of an off-the-shelf versus a customised central investment proposition, or KIP, as it's, I think, commonly known? <laughs> Indeed it is. Uh, yes, yeah, so I think if you look back to sort of a decade ago, your options as an advisor were A, bespoke DFM mahogany panelled offices, but very expensive, and that was the way you could differentiate, uh, or B, a kind of off-the-shelf multi-asset fund, or I guess latterly an, an MPS, and, and there wasn't much in between. Now, I think the reality is, is that most advisors and or clients don't want to pay for that bespoke service because it is quite expensive. Um, and therefore, most providers have focused on that kind of very scalable one-size-fits-all because they want effectively all the clients to end up in the same thing because that's the easiest way for them to run their business. Um, now, I think adding on that, quite a few, I've noticed quite a few of our peers or competitors refer to advisors as distribution channels or intermediaries, um, which, you know, is quite instructive of, of how they view the advisor, right? It's quite transactional and effectively the advisor is the, is the conduit to the end client's money, uh, which I think is quite different from us. You know, as I say, we are intentionally looking for a smaller number of deeper relationships with advice firms. And, um, you know, we're looking for that kind of partnership mentality. So I think in terms of kind of the off the shelf versus customized, so I think customized was what allowed us to break into what was already, already a crowded market. Because using our tech and using our investment expertise, we effectively allowed advisors to build models, so like an MPS, but which were customized to the end client, which could be done in sort of you know, under five minutes using the technology. So it's a bit like a bespoke DFM outcome, but at a MPS type price. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's something which, um, from our point of view, is a differentiator. Um, and I think probably extending on that, the other big trend we've observed recently, which is definitely an extension of the whole customized concept, is what we call insourcing. Other people call tailored models or segregated mandates, or I, don't, I mean, there's a variety of names for it. But effectively, this is whereby a discretionary firm like us will work in conjunction with an advice firm to build a range of models which are branded in the name of the advice firm, um, but where the advisor can still continue to have input into asset allocation or fund selection. Um, and I think a lot of advisors like this because they realize all the points I made earlier about the inefficiencies of running advisory models, but they don't want to fully let go of control, which I guess is the move to the outsourced um, you know, outcome. And so I think this is quite an elegant halfway house, which sits between them. Um, I, obviously, the branding helps pro protect against that direct-to-consumer risk, which I mentioned earlier as well. Mm. Um, but I think it's one of those ones, it's not suitable for every firm. We certainly don't offer it to every firm that we work with. But I think it's something where we're seeing a growing uh, appetite from advisors. And we've done a lot of work on that in the last sort of six, 12 months. Um, so, yeah. That's like kind of how I would talk about the difference between off the shelf, which is kind of your bog standard MPS, you're in risk bucket one, two, three, four or five uh, versus customized, but without having to pay the full fat price of like what I call bespoke. Yeah, I see. Um, and have you noticed any inconsistency in outcome across um, different client risk levels? Yeah, listen, I think last year was um, definitely a wake-up call for a lot of people, whether it be advisors or investment providers. I think, you know, risk separation, uh, which is, you know, 
a construct which sounds quite simple, but actually is quite hard to deliver. And by the risk separation, I mean that in a standard model range where there's, let's say, five risk points, for every higher risk point that you move up, in a rising market, you should be getting an incremental return right to compensate for that extra risk you're taking and therefore mm. portfolios should fly in formation and in a rising market it should go from bottom left to top right if that makes sense yeah now and then it should be a straight line right and there should be spacing between one two three four and five now that all sounds like it should be really obvious and easy but actually it's very hard to do and if you look at you know what those lines look like for a lot of our peers, you know, you get what we call spaghetti-like returns, where you're getting unintended outcomes where, you know, in a rising market, suddenly profile four, three is rising more than profile five, or, you know, you get these squiggly lines, which, you know, to our mind, we view ourselves purely as being the building blocks for an advisor to construct their financial plan for their client. And if those building blocks don't do what they say they're going to do on the tin, then that makes life quite difficult and can trigger some difficult conversations. So I think that's kind of the concept of risk separation. Um, I think linked into that, I think part of the problem is things can get lost in translation because, you know, we as part of our technology, we have our own risk profiler which has won various awards and, you know, and then that links straight into the portfolio construction module, right? So nothing's getting lost between A and B there. Whereas if you're using a third-party risk profiler, third-party DFM, uh, sometimes the link between those two can get broken. So that's another mm-hmm. problem with that kind of risk mapping um, side of things. But I suppose specifically last year, you had the uh, very unusual situation where because of what was happening in bonds and particularly UK gilts and what have you, uh, that you saw for some of our peers, the lowest risk clients were actually losing the most. So mm-hmm. that, that the, the plane of that, that line I talked about was completely inverted, which clearly uh, is not what uh, the client wants or the advisor wants or what have you. So I think Trying to deliver outcomes that are expected um, is something which is a huge, huge value add to advisors. So I think it's something which we have, you know, definitely if you ask me what our kind of investment superpower was, it would be that risk separation um, so that, you know, over almost any time frame, you've got that consistent slope of the curve. I can't mm-hmm. sadly promise you won't lose money um, from time to time because in down markets, you know, that's that's what happens. But in terms of there's those intended outcomes for clients, that is, I think, something which is definitely relevant for every advisor. Mm, definitely. Um, it's obviously a weird time at the moment with the economy, what it is, and cost of living crisis and everything. And I think we're seeing quite a lot of clients um, switch to cash rather than investments. And I just wondered what you thought about that. Is it a good idea or is it is it something advisors should be encouraging or should they be trying to keep their clients in investments and funds, in your opinion? So I would agree with you, definitely a trend that we have observed and actually talking to the platforms, you know, a lot of the platforms are saying they're seeing material outflows from money invested on platform into investments. And and that can be for a variety of reasons, right? It might be people are looking at where mortgage rates are and they're like, Woof, and I'm not sure I want to be paying that anymore, thank you. So they're taking money out of their investments to pay off the mortgages. Um, it can be that people are looking what the money you can get in the bank now, which frankly, you know, until very recently, you get not very much money uh, mm. paid back to you in terms of the money you put in the bank. And now I think humans like certainty, right? And they they see on something, they like, I can get 5%. If I put my money in the bank, I know I'm going to get 5%. Now, 
we can talk shortly about all the, the kind of shortcomings of that approach. But I think it is definitely another reason why they're taking money out of investments and putting them into um, those sort of cash type products. Um, and then I think the other thing, which is you know, having had its definite, uh, almost probably a decade in the wilderness, is you know annuities are definitely back in fashion. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. as I mentioned to you, I'm doing this um, roadshow for the PFS at the moment, um, and there's one of our peers who just focuses on annuities and the guy's got the biggest smile on his face you could possibly imagine because having had a decade <laughs> in the wilderness he's definitely back very much front and center which is you know that's great as it should be um i suppose just to sort of before i answer your question dig into a couple of those points the the thing about putting cash in the bank is well there's a number of problems with it number one as we know it's only protected up to the limit um you know the fscs per, per bank so you've got to, if you've got a lot of money you've got to split it across multiple different banks right so that's not necessarily it's a bit of a pain to do so um beyond that obviously you're going to get taxed on the interest paid so particularly if you're a high rate taxpayer so whilst it might look attractive at five percent or five and a half actually if the net number is more like sort of two and a half three it's not quite as attractive particularly with inflation running where it is running at so um you know we have definitely had advisors come to us and say listen this is definitely a problem we're observing can you help so actually you know one of the things we take pride of is being able to respond to advisor requests and anticipate trends. So actually something which Nick and the rest of the investment team have been working on is um, a product uh, around UK gilts, um, effectively creating a model using uh, direct investments in three underlying UK gilts. And without getting into too much technical detail here, effectively what it means, because you don't get taxed on any capital appreciation in those bonds, it's actually a very tax efficient uh, outcome for the client, and actually, you don't have to lock the money up for you know one year or two year like some of the like some of the bank deposits. Um, and for, so, in simple terms, that those things are probably the effective rate of return uh, once you factor in the tax side of things is probably north of eight percent. So, I think that's actually quite useful for advisors because they're like, well, we've got an alternative here, which actually is going to get you better sort of higher than inflation type returns without mm. all the shortcomings of sticking the money in the bank. But I get, I hear you, Mr. or Mrs. Client, that you want that certainty and, and that. So I think I think the answer, Lois, to your question is it's probably a combination of all these things because, as we know, uh, one of the facts I picked up from the PFS Roadshow is that, you know, people are going to live longer and longer and longer, you know, and one in five people alive today are going to live to being over 100. So just locking in 4% is not going to be enough. I think is my, is my view. So you have to have the kind of the, the range of the higher risk assets, which are going to deliver the higher returns versus the certainty which humans like and, and want, ideally. So it's probably a mix and match uh, is the answer to your question. Okay. Um, that's interesting. So I've got a lifetime ISA and it's a cash lifetime ISA. And I was speaking to an advisor who I won't name, who didn't give me advice, but he maybe suggested I should switch it to an investment license and I was too scared so I didn't do that but maybe I should I don't know Listen, I mean, I, I totally get that because, again, it goes back to humans like certainty. And you know what you're going to get in your cash ISA um, or investment ISA. You might get plus 10, you might get minus 10. Um, but Lewis, I would say that given you are still very youthful, you have many years of investing ahead of you. I think that you probably um, can afford to take a bit of risk because I don't hopefully you don't need the money tomorrow. Right. So therefore, um, you know, that, that might be I don't know what if he was pointing in the direction for that reason. 
But that's not advice. It's just a suggestion. It, of course, it's not advice. No, no, <laughs> I'm not an advisor. But you know, it's just us shooting the breeze about these topics. Great. Um, so I did just want to ask about, obviously, there's quite a lot of focus on consumer duty at the moment. It came in at, you know, um, implementation deadline was end of July. And it's a lot of focus on proving the value of advice. Um, how do you think advisors should be doing this or how can they prove that the advice they're giving is valuable? Yes, this is a topic close to my heart. Um, so I actually wrote a white paper about this over three years ago now, amazingly. And in it, I said, you know, we have no doubt at Portfolio Metrics that advisors add a lot of value to their clients. Um, and me personally, as a consumer of advice, I happily pay my financial advisor every year. Um, but we think at some point in the future, the regulator is going to come to you, Mr. or Mrs. Advisor, and say, prove it. Um, and how are you going to go about doing that? And so I think in that white paper, what we did, we took the feedback from over 200 plus advisors. Um, uh, we asked them a bunch of questions and then gave them also a chance to give their own commentary on that. Synthesized that into um, something which is accessible. We also did three case studies um, from three advice firms that we work with who evidenced their value in completely different ways. But really, the, the punchline there was that there's no right or wrong way of doing this as long as you're doing this. And so all of this happened well before consumer duty was even a twinkle in the eye of the regulator in terms of, you know, and I think that's good because we like to try and anticipate trends of where the advice profession is going rather than write about them once they're there. Um, so I think, and that's actually what I, I mentioned, the PFS Roadshow. So that's what I've been presenting at these various events, um, which confuses advisors because generally people push products at them of those things. And we're actually talking about them, not, not us. Um, but I think that's gone down really well. And I think the big conclusion from that is that, yes, of course, you must, to the extent possible, evidential value in pounds and pence terms or in percentage terms, particularly because that relates to what you're you know, how most advisors are charging their fees in terms of you know the whole ad valorem side of things. Um, so that's all well and good. But the reality is, and the biggest conclusion from the white paper, uh, and we also, just to be clear, we took what advisors were saying and then we checked that with what their clients thought, because that was a really interesting counterpoint. And um, I think the big conclusion from that is that well over a third of the attributes which clients value cannot be measured in pounds and pence because they're completely intangible. Right? Mm. Um, and that, I mean, we kind of bracketed them into concepts like, you know, empathy, the gift of time, peace of mind. Now, all of these things, there's no point trying to actually measure these things. But certainly myself, you know, as a consumer of advice, these are things that I really value. So I think kind of the, the punchline from our work on, on value advice, which then segued into consumer duty and then, you know, beyond that, is really it is a case for the advisor to go, right, here's the long laundry list of things which I believe I do that I that adds value to my clients and potentially how I differentiate from my peers and what have you. And then to take that and check that with your clients. And this is actually not really a consumer duty exercise. I mean, consumer duty needs to be adhered to and there's lots of good reasons for that. But actually, to my mind, if I was an advisor, I would do this as a completely separate exercise because actually once you've done that and your clients really understand the value of what you're doing for them, then actually the whole fee thing, I think in 99% of cases will be just taken off the table. Because I think it's, you know, 
if most clients understood the, the impact that their advisors are making on their life, then actually the fee thing is almost becomes immaterial. Because certainly, and that's again taking it away from the investment side of things, things like tax planning. You know, if you get that wrong, or let's be more, more positive, you get that right. You could be saving multiples of the advisor fees for many years to come. Um, and on that point, actually, we did a, a webinar. We have various portfolio metrics advisor communities. And we did one um, recently where we get some guest speakers along and um, I moderate. But, you know, there's no, no mention of us. We're just there to discuss a topic which is relevant to advisors. And this one was around advisor fees, perhaps unsurprisingly quite well attended, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, what the, the one thing which really stuck with me is there's a lady um, called Julie Flynn, who runs a firm up in Scotland, but she also is a coach for advisors. And uh, she led with what I thought was you know, quite a controversial comment, is that she said, I think advisors are chronically undercharging. Right, because the press okay. write quite quite a lot about how advisor this, that, the other, and fees. But her point is, you know, the a good advisor can genuinely change a client's life, right? And there's not many professions in the world which can say that. And so I think her view was, is that a lot of advisors are frightened about raising fees or worried about doing so and what have you. And her vo- her view was that you definitely shouldn't be because actually what you're doing is making a massive impact. And actually to, to extend on that, we, as part of the, um, that webinar, we did ask advisors, we said, listen, guys, fees, so it's not fees, your costs have gone up a lot over the last two years, right? Whether that be staff, premises, whatever, whatever. As we all know, life's got a lot more expensive over the last two yeah. years. And I would say that generally advisors are well, my expectation was that they, very few of them would have increased fees, right? Whereas obviously, meanwhile, lawyers, accountants, et cetera, have all raised their fees, but advisors hadn't. So we asked the 150-odd advisors on the call, you know, how many of you have increased your fees? And I was quite surprised that actually about half of them said over the last 18 months they had increased their fees. Okay. Didn't get into the details as to how much, but they had. And so I was like, okay, that's interesting. So we dug a little bit deeper. And I said, right, okay, for those 75 of you uh, who have increased your fees, how many clients did you lose? And the attrition rate was tiny. It was like, it was well below, I was probably below 2%, let alone below 5%. Um, so I think there's a, that, you know, I, it's not for me to say what advisors should do about fees. And that's kind of their lookout. But I think my, if there are advisors out there who were worried that increasing fees by X number of basis points or however you want to charge is going to mean that all their clients suddenly disappear, um, I would say the evidence from that session would suggest that's not the case. Okay, interesting. I'm resisting the urge to ask you about SJP, but I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think probably um, we are running out of time, but I did just want to ask you one more thing about client demographics. Um, And do you think clients in decumulation need different investment solutions from those in accumulation? Uh, Okay, I'll start high level on that one. So I think... um, (laughs) Demographics is definitely a challenge for most advisors, I would say, because the bulk of the money sits with the boomers um, and they, at one end of the boomer spectrum, you know, are coming to a time when sadly they will be, uh, you know, passing on. Now, the good advisors I know are all over this and they are already very much focused on future-proofing their business. Um, And I think a lot of people, and there's been reams written about intergenerational wealth transfer and how... Mm. 
you've got to get in front of the children or the inheritors before the person passes away. Uh, and I think that's absolutely right. And we've written quite a lot about that ourselves. Um, however, I also think that a lot of the people have overlooked the first transfer, generally uh, men predecease women. And so often the assets will pass from the husband to the wife first. And I think there are quite a few advisors out there who don't have a relationship with the wife. And if that's the case, there is quite a lot of industry evidence to suggest the fact that you will lose the money at that point, let alone when it goes to the kids. Yeah. So I think um, that is something which, you know, definitely requires focus. And I think particularly from a generational point of view, there had been a tendency, you know, for clients in their 70s and 80s, you know, generally the, the advisor focused on the husband in a sort of stand, a standard couple because the husband tended to control the finances. But that's a massive generalization, first of all. And second of all, like the point is, if the wife's going to inherit the money, you need to have a relationship with her as well. So a lot of the advisors we work with insist on meeting both halves of the couple rather than just whoever is in charge of the finances. So I think that's a definitely a very smart way of future-proofing your business. And then, as you say, then the next transfer happens to the kids. Now, um, the question is, and we've done a couple of, of our uh, sort of roundtables with advisors on this topic is, you know, those kids are going to be in the squeeze middle, right? Who they've got pressures coming from everywhere. And actually the money they inherit, they might just wear it, pay off a mortgage or put it on school fees or whatever it might be. But it, the point is there might actually not be that much amount of the money left over to be reinvested. So mm. I think unless you know that ahead of time as an advisor, that is definitely a big risk to your business. Um, and also just the other thing to factor in is as the money gets passed down the generations, I think generation needs both how they want to be serviced, but also what how they want to invest will change quite materially. From an investment perspective, I personally think that ESG will become more and more of a default for that next generation. Um, mm -hmm. And then from a service perspective, a lot of them don't want physical meetings, you know, in an office somewhere. They want to be able to access their information, you know, at a bus stop at two o'clock in the morning, whatever it is, you know, basically that's a and they may be very happy with a video call. They may never want to meet their advisor in person. So, and that is going to be a bit of a sort of seismic change in terms of the way that advice is given. But I think, you know, the good advisors are more than capable of dealing with that. So let me answer your question now, um, <laughs> that little monologue. Um, is, so do clients into communication need a different investment solution? So I think the assumption that because you tick one day older and you now are in retirement that you need to immediately change everything you've been investing in for the last 25 years to me doesn't feel right and it sort of plays back to the point which you asked about earlier is people are living for longer and longer they've got to still keep generating a decent amount of return on their capital in order to fund their lifestyle to prevent them from running out of money so there's definitely some good marketing pitches out there about why you need a centralized retirement proposition rather than a KIP or, you know, a decumulation strategy or what have you. I mean, our view is, is you don't necessarily need to change your asset allocation uh, overnight because of that, what you, you've changed, but you may need to add some other factors in, or you may need to start switching to share sorry, fund classes, which are paying out the income rather than rolling the income up. So there's, there's some tweaks you can make, and we do have our own range of um, what we call income-oriented portfolios, which actually uh, pay out the income. But you know, I think again, the danger of just targeting a fixed number—I need a four percent yield per annum to fund my costs. We've actually written a white paper on that on that 
in terms of we think that can have quite damaging consequences for the capital. So by slavishly targeting that 4% over here, you might be putting a big hole in the capital over here, which you may not recover. So I think really it's it's a blend, and it's a blend which the advisor is best positioned to actually set the client up for. So as I said, it, it might be keep most of your investments, but maybe add a bit of an annuity on the side or whatever it might be. But I think the advisor will know the client situation best. Yeah. Definitely. No, really interesting. It's very hard for someone in their 30s or probably even 40s to think ahead to how much they'll need in retirement, I think. Well, it's certainly, it's weird for me. I don't really think beyond 75, probably. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, well, it, no, I agree. It's definitely hard to think that far forward for any uh, human being, particularly when you're involved in the hamster wheel of life and there's a thousand things coming at you. That, trying to think where you're going to be in 40 years time is just almost inconceivable, right? So um, so I, I would agree with that statement. I think that's something which um, advisors can definitely help on. And I think the other thing is, is I remember doing an event with an advisor and he just talked about the the stages of life, um, mm-hmm. particularly post-retirement. And he called it the, um, the go-go phase, i.e. you've just retired and you're spending your money, you're going mm-hmm. on cruise, whatever you're doing, you're seeing the grandkids. Then it's the go slow as health things start to kick in and you know you're but and then there's the no-go. Uh, which is we're still alive. It is a bit <laughs> depressing. Uh, I definitely want to focus on the first one personally when I come to retirement. But yeah, but it was. I think the point is, is that your spending needs are going to kind of uh, vary enormously as you're through retirement, and therefore you need to, I guess, construct your financial plan to match with that. I think the other thing which people understandably worry about a lot is the cost of long-term care. Um, and again, I was yeah. on an industry event recently, and um, I think. The conclusion from this um, I provided was that people massively overestimate how long people will be in long-term care for. You know, it's not, I think that the number they had was like, sort of on average, it was like 18 months. It's not like eight years. But I think people filled up this bucket of savings to protect themselves about against that. So yeah, it is all quite depressing things to think about. But um, I think probably just to focus on, on the short term and getting things set up for now, and then you can worry about the kind of no-go and go slow later. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, I think that's probably all we've got time for for this episode. But thank you so much for joining me, Ben. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you very much for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. We do hope that you enjoyed it. Please do keep up to date with all our new releases via Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date with all our new content published on the Money Marketing website, as well as our print edition, Money Marketing Magazine. So make sure to subscribe. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. See you next time.